The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, an online intuition development course for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and this week my guest is Indigo Ocean Dutton. Indigo has an extensive background working with youth and in volunteerism. She's the founder of the Phone Buddies Peer Counseling Community. She's also an entrepreneur and self-made millionaire and the author of two books, one called Being Bliss and the other is Micro Habits for Major Happiness. I connected with Indigo over the phone. She was at home in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, Indigo, you mention on your website in the description of your book, Being Bliss, that you struggled with depression at a very early age, and your first suicide attempt came when you were nine years old. And I have an 11-year-old daughter, so when I think about her at this age going through that, it's hard for me to imagine what might be going through her mind that might lead her to be that depressed and want to take that kind of action. So I'm wondering if you can remember what the internal dialogue was like for you at nine years old that made you feel that way. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'd go back a little bit further. I I remember when I was about seven years old, uh, coming to the conclusion one day as I sat in reflection in my room that I just really didn't like this life thing. I wasn't enjoying it. It wasn't very pleasant. So I went to my mother and I said, you know, I wish I had never been born. Now, I think at some level, you know, a seven-year-old's mind is not (laughs) very complex. So, you know, I don't know what kind of response I really expected. She was just like the person I told stuff to. So I'd come to this groundbreaking understanding. So I shared it with her. Of course, from her side, she was working unbelievably hard um, as a single mother trying to support me and my uh, two older sisters. And just, I mean, she had a three and a half hour daily commute that was like two buses and two trains <laughs> in each direction. Um, and then had to, you know, probably a very stressful job throughout the day. Um, and so for her, you know, she just heard ingratitude. And so she just got very, very angry. So then I learned, okay, well, won't be sharing those ideas with or feelings with anybody. Um, and so then a couple years later, I guess, you know, I was, my ability to understand things was developing, my self-awareness was developing, and my ability to see that I could do things in the world, that I could make choices, and that I could make things happen um, was growing. I wasn't just, you know, waiting for other people to solve my problems. So when those thoughts and feelings came up again, of, you know, I'm just not enjoying this, you know, no thanks, um, I knew how to take action. You know, I found some chemicals and my older sister's chemistry set that said lethal if swallowed. Mm. So I thought, oh, that should do the trick. So I swallowed them. Needless to say, it was false advertising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, I really sucked at suicide for a very, <laughs> very long time. Um, and by the time I got good at it, I, I had a reason to stop doing it. But, How long um, did you struggle with the suicidal thoughts? And I think attempts. my last attempt was at age 21. 
And what happened at age 21 is I got good enough at it to wind up hospitalized. Mm -hmm. And because I was hospitalized for the first time, my, my family had to deal with it. And by then I also had a little sister. I had a sister who was nine years younger than me. So this was the first time she also found out. And I was always, you know, even though I wasn't really very happy, I was very successful in life actually. I mean, I was making a lot of stuff happen from a very early age. Like, I mean, I created a summer camp when I was 15. Mm -hmm. So I was making stuff happen. I just wasn't happy. So I'd always been very motivational towards other people and especially my little sister. So when my little sister found out that I had attempted suicide and been hospitalized, it was just so devastating to her Mm. that I realized I couldn't leave intentionally while she was still alive, that I had to somehow find a way to stay in the game, um, you know, at least through my intent and my conscious effort, you know, I, I, I think I secretly kind of kept hoping I'd, you know, get hit by a piece right. of falling space debris or something. Right. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, I had to show up for her and set a certain standard for her because I didn't want her to give up on her life. And why do you think you were so despairing for all those years? Well, I think there are a couple things to do with it. I think one is a little bit, you know, biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that just in my family, there's a, a biochemical balance that towards depression. Um, and so we have to counteract that with things like exercise and, you know, eating habits and sleeping habits and things like that, because our tendency will be in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in my family who struggled with depression. I was just probably the most proactive person and saying, okay, well, you know, I don't have to, you know, I, I don't have to stay then in that mm-hmm. case. Um, and then I think the other part of it was I was a much more spiritual person than most people in my family. My family's fairly spiritual in general. Like I knew my astrological sign before I could write my name. You know? <laughs> what is your sign? <laughs> Uh, Aquarius, Aquarius is my uh, sun sign, mm. and then uh, Cancer Moon and uh, Taurus rising, mm. and um, so I, you know, I, I knew this kind of stuff. So, in that sense, I mean, we, you know, we played with Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff when I was a kid. Um, but I think that in terms of having a deep personal relationship with spirituality, I was more of that than the rest of my family, and so I think that. This awareness that's growing now in the world, which at that time wasn't very pervasive of, you know, life is for you. And the point of life is enjoying it. Like this is, you know, your life is not supposed to be about suffering. I had an intuitive knowing of that. And yet my life was nothing but suffering. You know, we were very poor. I was hungry a lot. Um, we lived in New York and it's you know, it very cold in New York. And I had only canvas sneakers. I had no boots. So if it snowed, I'd be up to my ankles and just soaking wet and cold all day. Mm. Uh, I mean, life was hard. And I was worried all the time because my mother was worried all the time. Would we have food? Would we keep the electric on? Would we keep the phone on? Would we be able to pay the rent? And when you're really young, it's like you can't do anything about that. I mean, I would go through the house in the middle of the night, turning turning the heat off Mm. until I got caught. And I would develop an allergy to milk but then we discovered I was only allergic to milk at home I could drink right. school and it was just like you know so I took a lot on and at the same time I had this feeling that life was supposed to be different and so this tension you know when you put it all together it just was like just a recipe yeah. for having a very difficult time uh, coping so tell me about 
the moment or the first time you can remember the switch flicking, you know, like the, the light going on that you could actually choose to be in bliss. You could actually choose to follow your, your intuitive sense that life was meant to be enjoyed. How did that come to you? And how did that become your action of choice? You know, I think it was a very slow progression, actually. I think the first thing was simply making the commitment to stay. Mm -hmm. That has to be there. And so for me, I couldn't do it for myself, but I could do it for someone else that I loved, Mm. um, who I felt responsible for as well. And um, so once I made that commitment, then it was like, okay, well, (laughs) now I've got to really learn how to make this work because this is just too hard like this. So I really dedicated myself to self-improvement and to learning how to be happy in life. And, you know, I, I um, learned meditation. I started going to things like, you know, sound healing events. Um, I moved to San Francisco from the East Coast. And so out here, you know, people were more attuned to these kinds of things just in general. I started reading books like, I think the first book that really had a big effect on me, well, I think the first one was The Power of Myth mm-hmm. by Joseph Campbell. So that had a big effect on me. And, um, and then the next one that had a big effect was The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment, which is a tiny little paperback, but it's like, this sums it up. <laughs> this is everything right here. And then I started reading books like The Holographic Universe, which you know, just presented, I had always been really into physics, and so it brought together spirituality and physics for me in a really convincing way. And so it was like, a lot of it was books. You know, really. Um, and I just was learning and, and practicing. I was experimenting with my life because I felt like, well, I, what do I have to lose? I, I, you know, I'm stuck here and this isn't working. So I might as well just experiment with other ways of living and other belief systems to see if they do any better for me than the belief system that I was brought up with has mm-hmm. done for me. And by the time, the real like clear turning point that I could see a big difference though, where I kind of turned a, a corner was when I went to uh, Bali in, in Indonesia and I spent a year living in Bali. What were you doing there? Um, I taught dance. I studied dance. Um, I wrote a lot of, of the material that eventually became Being Bliss, but really more importantly than anything, I sat on the deck <laughs> watching the mountains come in and out of view from behind the clouds. I, I sat there. The first four months I was there, I just sat on the deck watching the sky all day. And, you know, I had a Pimbantu, a household helper, so she would do the shopping and, and, and cooking. And so I had meals, and she would make breakfast and lunch for me, and then I'd have leftover for lunch for dinner. And I barely left my house. You know, I occasionally left my house. I'd walk over, meet neighbors, meet other Westerners and stuff. So I had some connections that were growing. But I mostly just sat and I let so much just kind of melt away. You know, I always say the process of awakening isn't the process of taking on ideas. It's the process of letting go of ideas. Because awakening is our true state. That's our natural state. Right? Mm -hmm. So I just sat and I let what was false melt away. And then, yeah. Go ahead. Then, then after about four months, I just had this inspiration to get up and to, to go out. And so I went to like, you know, a restaurant and, and then, I, you know, people, I met someone there and they invited me to a party. And then at the party, I met people. And so that social thing started happening a little bit more. There were more times when I just felt like 
spontaneously getting up and going somewhere. And every single time um, there would be an opportunity that would come and lay itself at my feet, like things I'd been trying to make happen for a decade in San Francisco, like just working so hard to try to make creatively happen, you know, sacred arts events. Um, I would have, you know, these events and there would be like 10 people who would come and they would love it, but there would only be 10 people. And or I would, you know, try modeling or I would try I was just doing all these different kinds of things, you know, dancing, trying to perform, you know, professionally. And uh, there it was like, oh, you know, I hear that you're into sacred arts. Well, I've I've just come back from this conference on it and I have all this, you know, basically capital from my businesses and I know how to run a business, but I don't know how to do the content part. Can we collaborate and I'll put on the event and you just do the content? And I was like, sure. And so we had we had this like sold out, even though it was like a monsoon that night, it was sold out standing room only sacred arts event that was like this huge hit that like I'd never had that scale of success. Or it was like, oh, we're making this, you know, natural, international natural beauty book. And um, we'd like you to represent the United States. And I'm like, sure. And then like Tina Turner buys 50 copies of the book. <laughs> so great. <laughs> it was like one of my few idols is Tina yeah. Turner. Tell me what you mean when you say sacred arts. So sacred arts, it would be like, in my case, I was especially into dance and I, I was teaching ecstatic dance, mm-hmm. um, which now has come to have a certain name to it. Like there was an actual style of dance called that. But at that time, that wasn't the case. And so all it meant was more of a channeled mm-hmm. dance. So if I would perform it, I would be watching the dance happen the same as anyone else, even though it was my body moving. I wasn't making my body move. I was allowing it to move. And I was allowing spirit to express itself through my form in synchronization and responsiveness with the music, um, which works particularly well when there are live musicians because they're really doing the same thing. And so we're all channeling from these kind of different wavelengths. These are the you know, sound, motion. Um, and so I performed that also. Um, which, you know, performing that for Balinese people is really different than performing it for Westerners. Because when you perform it for a Balinese, when you perform it for Westerners, they'll say things like, wow, that was so beautiful. That was captivating. I felt like I was transported, you know, which is great, right? But when you perform it for Balinese, they'll be like, first, I saw Krishna. <laughs> and then I saw Govinda. <laughs> and then I saw Gopala. <laughs> like, they they, it's real to them. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, those were the deities I was thinking about at those moments, actually. Mm. There's a real something that happens for them. So then you go back to the United States and you, you are a prolific entrepreneur. You founded many companies and, then, and you actually work in business technology. Have I got that right? Yeah, 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 that was my first. That was my first large company. I, I do less of that now. Okay, so that was the company where you became a self-made millionaire. Yeah, and now it sounds like you're doing more uh, sort of uh, personal uh, coaching and consulting. Is that yeah, true? yeah. One of the really cool things about having done Spiritech, which was the you know corporate business technology company. Okay, so first, I did love doing it at the time. You know, I'm kind of over it now because I just did it so much. Um, uh, But I was able to leverage the kind of money that you make in something like that into other forms of revenue streams. And so then that allowed me to create passive, passive income streams. So that took a lot of pressure off me, kind of like 
the time in Indonesia took a certain kind of pressure off me that allowed me to tap into a life of allowing and of allowing yourself to be blessed instead of trying to make everything happen. It was that turning point for me. And I think getting to that point where I was supported by passive income was a different kind of turning point because now there was no longer this little girl afraid she wasn't going to be able to survive because there was no one to buy food and there was no one to, to guarantee to pay the rent. And now that was taken care of. And I didn't have to do anything to have it taken care of. And so for the first time, it was like ideas started coming through. And that was when I realized, like, I really like helping people to do what I've done. You know, I like I want to work with this one person that is just this human across from me. And I want to help them see how they can use the process of healing their relationship with work and money and their business as a part of their path of spiritual awakening. Like I want to help them unite those two things mm -hmm. so that the incredible abundance of your natural self as it exists in your spiritual truth also exists in your work in the world as equally true. And these two things are not divided. Mm. So if your younger you could see your current you in the world, what do you think? she would see? Well, I think, you know, if I go back to really, really, really young, she'd be like, wow, okay, so I guess this is worthwhile. Because <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, eventually I get to the fun part. Right. You know? And if you now could go back and talk to the younger you, what would you say? I'd say, you know, hang in there. You know, there, there really is a fun part to this. Like, you know, I realize this part is really hard and there's just nothing to do to be done about that. This is what it is. But just know that you're on the right path. Mm. So for you today, what would you say is the most challenging aspect of your spiritual life right now? Mm, you know, I can't honestly say anything is challenging right now. <laughs> Uh, in all honesty, I'm not into doing challenge anymore. I, I'm completely committed to the easy way. <laughs> and I'm simply just like waking up each day and just saying, okay, you know, wow, what a juicy day ahead. And I lie there in bed. I don't get up until something launches me out of bed. If I don't feel something is propelling me out of bed that I can't wait to do, I just lie there feeling good, enjoying how it feels to be in my bed. Um, and then eventually a thought will come through my mind and it's usually like something I want to create or some, you know, I, I do custom work for my clients. So I'm, I'm constantly creating materials that take this person to, you know, to the next step from where they are. And so I'll have an idea that will come through and I'm so excited about doing it. And I'll just like kind of jump up out of the bed. Um, and then I move through the day in a, a fairly similar way. You know, I'm, I'm constantly reminding myself that all is Dharma, you know, that, 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 uh, my life is being lived through me, not by me. You know, I'm constantly reminding myself to give credit for the big successes to that, which moves through me mm -hmm. and, and only see the, the little steps, you know, I, I wrote, you know, I, I got this email out, whatever. Okay. That's me. That's my little ego self using my intellect of things I've learned how to do and applying those skills. And that's all good too. Mm -hmm. But, but that's pushing things along. And there's only so far I'm going to get with that when I want the wind at my back and I want to like really make things happen. 
I know that I, I get out of the way and I don't try to take ownership for that. So I would say my biggest spiritual practice is really that. It's just like staying focused on really savoring every moment and realizing this is the life I came to live. It's not in the future. My future is now. This is what my enlightenment looks like right mm-hmm. now. And it will change on its own. So what do you think of discipline in a spiritual context? I think early on, it's very important. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, like even in meditation, first you learn concentration meditation. And then once you have the ability to actually meditate when you sit to meditate, um, you can do awareness meditations where you're watching the arising of emotions, for example, or watching the arising of thought. And therefore, you're able to learn things experientially like, wow, thoughts, you know, feelings, they just kind of come up on their own. There doesn't need to be something causing them. That means they're, they're not objectively real. That means I have choices about emotions. I'm not controlled by them. Wow, I never knew that before. You can learn things like that experientially, but first there needs to be the discipline that you can sit there focused on your inner experience, and that's where concentration and meditation prepares you. Mm. So aside from meditation, what would you say is one of your favorite ways to express your devotion to spirit? You know, I walk my dog every day and, um, you know, nature is beautiful and my dog is happy and I'm, and I know that I'm making her happy. You know, I put my neighbors, (laughs) I live in a very friendly neighborhood, but my, my neighbors will tell me, you know, why do you always walk along looking down? We'll be waving at you and you don't even see us. And it's like, it's because my dog is so cute and she's so happy (laughs) that a lot of time I'm walking, I just like enjoy watching her bounce along so happy. And I watch, I enjoy watching her enjoying herself. That's awesome. What kind of dog do you have? She's um, half Maltese and half Poodle, so she's a, she's a mixture. What but a she's cute. very fluffy and, and curly and, and <laughs> super friendly and super happy. Nice. Okay, so the last question on the Numinous podcast comes from the Proust questionnaire, and it is, what do you consider perfect happiness? Hmm. I would say, you know, accepting the present moment, whatever it contains, like, deciding that, okay, you know, I, I, I say yes, mm-hmm. that's perfect happiness. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you said yes to being on the show. Thank you so much for being on the Numinous Podcast. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. You know, I first contacted Indigo and wanted her on the show because I was attracted by the organization she started called uh, Phone Buddies Peer Counseling Community. Uh, When I was in my 20s, I volunteered on a crisis line and I did suicide awareness uh, talks in high schools for youth. And so I thought, oh, wow, we have this interesting thing in common. Uh, But then the more I started to uh, reach out and get to know her and research her, you know, the the more I started to think about two words, resilience and inspiration. There aren't too many people that I meet that make me wish I'd get off my ass and do something with my life, but (laughs) she's definitely one of them. So I highly recommend that you check out her book, Being Bliss. And if you go to my website and click on the podcast link, you'll find the show notes uh, with links to her book and also the three that she recommended. I too also highly recommend Joseph Campbell, anything by him, but particularly The Power of Myth. Very good introduction. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for uh, sharing the show with people if you like it. Uh, Japan, you're up. It's your turn. I'd like to say thank you to all of the listeners in Japan. Uh, 
it, it's a tremendous honor, a deep bow to you uh, for spending time connecting with your soul and with uh, like-hearted souls around the world by listening to the podcast today. I really sincerely appreciate it. And if you'd like to keep exploring the great mystery of life with me, you can just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. While you're there, sign up for my newsletter. You'll instantly receive a free meditation download, and I'll let you know every time I publish a new show. Until next time, take care.